You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 67, The Third Republic, Part 7, Rearmament. This week, a big thank you goes out to Mike, Brad, and Paul for their generous donations to the podcast, with part of their donations going to the purchase of Shattered Sword, The Untold Story of Midway, which is far and away the most listener-recommended book in the history of any of my podcasts. One of the challenges of approaching the Second World War is the sheer amount of books that have been written about it. There are many, many libraries worth. So if you have a favorite book on any topic relating to the interwar or war years, let me know through email or social media or on Discord, the links for all of which are on the website and in the show notes. With that out of the way, on to the episode. The topic of rearmament in France is a tricky subject because it is almost impossible to discuss French rearmament without comparing it to what was happening in Germany at the same time and the results of France's war effort in later years. In the comparison to Germany, French efforts seem small, almost quaint before 1938. But if you break the rearmament years into specific periods, then things start to look much better. There is no disputing that up until the Munich crisis, German efforts were far in excess of anything that France was doing. But then, in the period between the start of 1939 and September 1939 when the war starts, that balance begins to drastically shift. By the time that the war actually started, France was outproducing Germany in both tanks and aircraft. When it comes to judging the specifics of how the French pursued rearmament, the evaluations that you can find are kind of all over the place. At the time, there was a real debate about the most efficient way to manage rearmament, which was a serious economic and industrial undertaking. Some advocated for close and tight government control, which had been the path that Germany had been forced to pursue. But there were both philosophical and economic arguments against such an arrangement. On the philosophical side, a more laissez-faire approach was what the French economic system had been based on. In the strict government budgets of the early 1930s, they had moved even further away from strict control in an effort to limit government spending. There was also the belief that the German rearmament was not doing so well, especially as it looked to the future after 1938, which was probably an actually pretty solid evaluation of the German efforts, which were on the quick course to causing serious economic problems as the demands of rearmament could not be met by further imports. Or as one editorial in The Economist would say at the time, quote, 
The one great lesson that can be drawn from the German economic experience of the past three years is that well-organized control can secure the maximum utilization of the country's resources for the piling up of armaments. That was pretty positive. But then if you actually look at sort of what is happening in Germany and what the French kind of knew and everybody kind of knew was happening in Germany, there were problems building up in the German economy where they just couldn't meet the demands of these piling up of armaments along with normal everyday life. Now, the evaluations were not perfectly accurate because the French and the British kind of assumed that the German economy would come crashing down far sooner than it would have in actuality, but that's kind of a different story and something we'll discuss in more detail in later episodes. In France, there were similar concerns that such control of the French economy would stifle the growth that was absolutely essential for rearmament to hit the desired production targets. In the end, the French would pursue an uncoordinated approach to rearmament, which caused a rapid increase in production, but also had other ramifications, some of which we discussed last week with the rapid draining of French hard currency reserves. Another theme that would run through French rearmament was the fundamental belief that quote-unquote real rearmament would not even begin until the war started. At that point, the entire French economy could be reoriented towards military needs. This was a lesson that had been learned during the First World War, where military production and expansion during the war years absolutely dwarfed anything that had come before. In this episode, we're going to look at the rearmament itself, while next episode, and the final in our series focusing on France, we will focus on how they were planning to use the weapons that they were creating. The beginnings of rearmament were rooted in the popular front years. It would be during 1936 that the first four-year program would be mapped out and started, and it required the popular front to sacrifice social reforms that had been a critical part of their political platform. The final cost of this initial round of investments would be 14 billion francs, spread over four years, and it would be finalized on October 30, 1936. While this was a considerable sum of money, there were some considerable problems that had to be rectified both within the French military and economy before the proper results could be attained. When it came to acquisition of war material, the French military had a tendency to not make it at all easy for anyone. There were certain best practices when it came to producing, well, anything, but especially when it involved the kind of specialty and large production facilities that many large armament programs required in the 1930s. Some of these best practices were to provide a long runway of production orders, uh, provide consistent purchases, and then make no radical changes to specifications. All of these were at many points violated by the French military. One very specific example of this phenomenon was a scouting vehicle that was designed to work with the French cavalry. The initial design was signed off on, and the factory created an assembly line to produce it. Several test models were then handed over to the cavalry with the expectation that it would be tested and then more orders would be placed with maybe some minor modifications, you know, as you do. Then nothing happened for six months. In that time, the entire ecosystem that had been built around the production of that vehicle had fallen apart. The assembly line had been mothballed. All of the various part suppliers had found other buyers for their goods. So when the second order was finally placed, everything had to be reworked and restarted, and suppliers had to be found, and the assembly line had to be turned back on. This caused further delays. Now, not everything was the military's fault, as we will discuss here in just a moment, uh, but everything was tied together. The military not doing everything possible to work with French industry resulted in further delays. 
then those delays for weapon systems, especially newer and more complicated systems, like tanks, would result in training delays and the lack of ability of troops to fully prepare to use them in time of war. These problems were very problematic for large maneuvers, especially where a lot of equipment was required, because without the proper number of the most modern pieces of equipment, it was impossible to do any real testing of their usage and performance. The 1937 maneuvers were pretty much derailed for the reason that they didn't have some of these new pieces of equipment, which in retrospect would be incredibly important because they would be the last pre-war maneuvers that would occur because they were staged in the fall and the 1938 version would be cancelled by the Czech crisis. While the French military was suffering partially due to decisions that they were making during rearmament, on the economic side, they also had to contend with years of decisions that created a perfect storm to make rearmament difficult. Before we talk too much about the problems, let's at least start on a positive note. When the Popular Front started the four-year program, it at least made one really smart move, and that was to make it clear that the investments in rearmaments were going to be long-term. They were going to keep spending money for a long period of time. This made industrialists and investors less hesitant to spend the money that was needed for French rearmament to be a success, and money was very sorely needed. By the late 1930s, the French arms industry was in a shockingly debilitated state due to a whole bunch of reasons. Due to the strength of the franc during most of the interwar period, there had been very little international interest in French-produced arms because the strong franc had made such exports very expensive. The French military had not been a great source of orders either, as the constant reductions in government budget had put a serious damper on any domestic arms production. This lack of incentive had resulted in little investment in industrial expansion or factory modernization in critical arms industries. When those same industries were then called upon to massively increase their output for rearmament, they simply were not up to the task. One of the possible solutions to these problems, at least according to some French leaders, was to nationalize the arms industries, which would allow more direct control over the behavior of the entire supply chain. The nationalization push had some very strong advocates within the French government, including Prime Minister Daladay. Daladay was joined by Gamblin in the desire to push for greater government control in the hopes of solving equipment shortages that the French military was experiencing. This nationalization push was divisive at best, and when it was introduced into the French Senate, it would have an important caveat. If the government took over anything, it had to be full companies. They could not just buy into part of a company. It had to become wholly nationalized. Daladay and others would have preferred some way to exert large amounts of influence without requiring complete control, but they would take what they could get. Over the following months, various purchases of certain companies were made. The Air Ministry would take control of 28 factories, the Navy 2, and the Army 9. However, this was just a drop in the bucket of the companies that made up France's arms industry. There were something like 600 private factories in France participating in rearmament, and so just 39 in, in total was a pretty small percentage. But it did allow the government and the military to take control of some of the lowest performing factories, and gave them at least some control over what was being manufactured and how it was being designed. Even though a number of factories had been nationalized, there was still a huge amount of friction between the industrialists and the unions, and in the early stages it would be an important part of the rearmament process. In every country that began these large rearmament programs, this pre-existing friction would increase as the employers wanted to maintain a high level of production on generally very profitable government contracts. 
the French workers were adamant that they not lose some of the reforms that they had gained over the previous years, like the 40-hour workweek. Restricting working hours was anathema to those employers that were trying to push through greater and greater levels of production. The difference in opinion would result in a one-day strike in November 1938. The strike would result in swift action from the government, who would call in the police to break up the strikes. Such an action was at the behest of many within the government that still strongly favored a free market outlook on the economy, and for that free market to work, they believed that the power of the industrialists had to be maintained. Or as the French finance minister would say in November 1938, quote, We live in a capitalist system. For to function, we must obey its laws. These laws are those of profits, individual risk, free markets, and growth by competition. End quote. The clear government backing of the industrialists and of their ability to kind of do what they needed to do to expand would break the resistance of the unions. And over the next year, the 40 hour workweek would be destroyed in the name of greater arms production. During 1939, hours would rise up and would begin exceeding 60 hours, while at the same time the real purchasing power of wages would drop precipitously. This complete shift in worker relations would continue into the war years, while at the same time taxes on workers would be increased to help fund further government efforts. However, more power did not solve all the problems for the factory owners, and when mobilization was ordered, they would very rapidly find themselves robbed of thousands of skilled workers who were called to the front. That such actions occurred is a great indication of the absence of some of the controls of the entire industry that probably should have been put in place before the war started. It was a simple lack of coordination, with the Ministry of Labor unable to put limits on who would be mobilized or who could be mobilized, and the military and the army not really paying attention to what was necessary for further arms production. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When it came to what was being built during rearmament, uh, aircraft obviously played a major role. 
When it came to those aircraft, one of the common discussions that would occur in nations around the world during the interwar years were how a nation's air assets should be used and how they should be organized in relation to other military arms. For example, in Britain, there would be many discussions between the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force over control of the fleet air arm. And in the United States, the Army Air Corps and the Army would have their own disagreements. In France, these discussions would also occur, and it would result in the French Air Force becoming its own independent military branch after 1934. While some of the disagreements in these discussions were focused around political power and control, there was also an undercurrent of how air power should be used. Air forces that were under the control of the army were often molded and pushed towards capabilities that were most useful to the rest of the army. This often meant a focus on artillery spotting, reconnaissance, and close air support. In essence, the army saw the air force as just an extension of its own normal strategy, just another tool to to mix in with everything else, like artillery or tanks. In France, the tie to the French army would also prevent the air service from putting serious time and resources into strategic bombing capabilities. It was in these strategic capabilities that Air Force leaders believed they could have their greatest impact, but the Army saw things differently. The relationship between the Army and the Air Force would begin to shift after 1931, when laws were first proposed in France that would create an Air Force that was independent from the other services. However, given the resistance to this idea from other military leaders, It would be a long and delayed process before this independence became official in July 1934. There were limits to this newfound freedom, though. Army leaders were able to set up a system whereby almost all of the Air Force's resources were classified as forces of cooperation with the Army. This was important because any air units that were classified as forces of cooperation would come under the command of the regional Army commander in time of war, not the Air Force. Only the reserve forces would be under the command of the Air Force. For the leaders of the Air Service, this was seen as a serious problem for how air power should and could be used in France. They believed that to use the Air Force effectively, they might need to concentrate all available strength to meet a specific enemy attack. But by parceling out the various air units to army group commanders, such concentration of force was simply not possible. One of the ways in which the Air Force angled to get more resources and to make sure it kept them all under its own control was by claiming that it would be the only piece of the French military that could fulfill an offensive operation at the start of the war. If it was recognized that the army had to be defensive, which pretty much everybody realized, then it would be up to the Air Force to project as much strength as possible in support of France's allies in Eastern Europe. This roughly aligned with the thinking in some other nations as well, like, for example, in Britain, where the RAF was seen as the best way to launch early offensive operations against an enemy on the continent. But in France, the results of this advocacy and the general desire of the Air Force to build up a large strategic bombing capability would be disappointing. The three most serious problems were the continued sabotage of the army, manufacturing problems, and the massive head start enjoyed by the Luftwaffe. When it came to discussions with the Army, most of the problems were around the type of aircraft that they wanted to build. The Army pushed for multi-role aircraft that could fulfill several missions like tactical bombing and reconnaissance. In the early 1930s, this resulted in a series of aircraft which were based around a multi-seat concept that could fulfill both roles, but generally did both of them somewhat poorly. 
In later years, this would shift, but not until after several years were spent pursuing these larger multi-role aircraft. Along with disagreements around which aircraft to build, there were also serious problems simply building enough of whatever was decided on. Before rearmament really got going, French air manufacturing facilities could be classified as antiquated, and few major upgrades had been made since the 1920s. Instead of mass assembly and the use of manufacturing machinery, aircraft were still being built largely by hand, and in what some histories would call an artisanal process. Great strides would eventually be made to solve this problem, but not until after 1938. By the time that French aircraft production began to accelerate, the Luftwaffe already had a massive head start, and this caused the third serious problem, the sheer size and power of the German Air Force. Because the French found themselves so far behind, it completely threw off all the calculations around where money should be spent, and it put added emphasis on building as many fighter aircraft as possible. Otherwise, the greater Luftwaffe numbers might simply overwhelm the French Air Force. The good news is that there was certainly money available for these rearmament efforts, and the air ministry would be given 24 billion francs in 1938 and 1939, up from just $6.6 .6 the year before, so almost a four-fold increase. The challenges in the aircraft manufacturing industry were just one of many faced by France in its rearmament efforts, but one of its real strengths over specifically Germany or many other European nations were its colonial possessions. Colonies had been accumulated for many reasons by European powers for uh, centuries before the Second World War. For the French during the interwar period, the colonies were seen to play a role in both rearmament and in the conflict that would inevitably follow. To make the most out of the colonies would require some investment by France around general infrastructure and industrial capabilities, and the first major interwar plan for this investment would be in the form of the Soreau Plan, which was proposed in April 1921. The primary focus of this plan was around public spending on colonial infrastructure, particularly transportation infrastructure, and it, there was a clear statement that the government should take responsibility for further enhancements. Uh, it took into account the needs of the indigenous populations, and, and it stated quite clearly that they should be considered. And then finally, it also made a simple long-term commitment to continue the investment in the hopes that this would attract more private spending in those same regions. While all of these items involved a transfer of wealth out of France into the colonies, there was the general hope that over time this would be completely worth it and would be paid back several times over. There would be resistance to colonial investment from a few different corners of French politics and society, which kind of all revolved around two major concerns, worker relations and market disruption. On the first point, there were those that were concerned that if industry in the colonies increased, they would have to start being more concerned about worker activism and class politics uh, sort of spreading to the colonies from France. These concerns were strongest in the early 1920s, at a time when socialism in France was gaining more and more support, and more radical leftists were also a huge concern, especially after the Russian Civil War. The second concern was around how the colonial markets interacted with industry in France. Due to protective measures that were put in place to provide French products a preferential position in the colonies, the colonies often acted as a captured market. This greatly benefited industry within France as they had a market that they could count on for their manufactured products. 
because there was no other area that those colonies could really import them from. When the topic of investment in the colonies was introduced into French politics, industrial leaders started to agitate against it under the concern that they would lose this captured market if more products were produced in the colonies themselves. These two concerns, among others, would put limits on how much investment could be made and how many really meaningful changes could be put in place in the French colonies during the interwar period. While there was some hesitancy to make too many economic changes, there were also some concerns about making too much of an investment in building up the colonies as a manpower reserve for wartime. To put it simply, there were concerns about training too many soldiers, because those soldiers just might turn hostile. When structures were put in place to assist in conscription and training, they were almost always rooted in the martial races theory that had been so popular in the 19th century. Here is Martin Thomas from Economic Conditions and the Limits of Mobilization in the French Empire, 1936 to 1939, to explain. Quote, when it came to conscription policies, they were grounded in martial race theories with subjects' populations graded against numerous scales of utility from the early days of the 19th century conquest. Ethnic groups were variously typecast by schemes of physical, psychological, and cultural profiling as complex as they were specious. End quote. This put self-imposed limits on the manpower resources that could be pulled from the colonies to the defense of the French mainland, and these limits were then also influenced by the general unrest that was experienced in the colonies. The rabid fear of investment in the colonies from some groups in France meant that the colonies did not have the economic growth that they probably should have. By 1939, the entire situation was one of decay, with French power slipping as the general quality of life for those in the colonies continued to decline. That did not prevent a massive influx of resources from the colonies into the French war effort in the months after the war began, but this had the side effect of pushing many populations into even greater resistance to further French rule. This resistance was bolstered by massive requisitioning efforts, increases in inflation which rendered local economies impotent, and increasing control from the French in their efforts to enact those exploitative policies that were causing so many economic problems. This would eventually result in martial law having to be put in place in many of France's most important colonies, especially in the North African triumvirate of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. The French Empire would end up being a great what-if. With decades of underinvestment and antagonistic policies, robbing France of what should have been an even greater strength in wartime, and especially a strength when compared to other nations of Europe that did not have such large colonial holdings, like Germany. Thank you for listening to episode 67, and I hope you will join me next week for the final episode in our series covering France during the interwar period, in which we will look at the French military and how they plan to fight a war that they were pretty sure was coming in the late 1930s or in the early 1940s. 